and welcome to Victory Points. I'm Becca Scott, and on this show every week I interview a guest about board games and why they love them and why they've changed their whole life, essentially. And uh, this show itself is its own little game because on Victory Points I get to give out Victory Points for any reason I see fit, and these points have absolutely no relevance in anything else, unlike any show that's ever done that before. Okay. Today, I am talking with David Aaron Zuckman. He is the creator and designer of Overlords of Infamy and uh, founder, CEO of Obscure Reference Games. Yep. Hi. Hi, Welcome. how are you doing? Oh my God, so good. Getting over a cold. Sorry, my voice may sound stuffy, or maybe it's just ultra sexy today with the, you know, the, the sickness, sexy voice. I say you own it. Just go for it. Thank you. Thank you. I will. All right. So, uh, David. Hi. You made a game. Yes, I did. You're making another game, an expansion of that game. Yeah. Uh, Overlords of Infamy and Misery Loves Company. All right. Tell me, uh, for the listeners, all two of them. Uh, <laughs> that many. Wow. Yeah. Well, we upgraded from last episode. We have one. Now we have two. Um, tell me how Overlords of Infamy works. I've played it, but I'll let you do the spiel, if you would. Sure. I'd love to. Uh, Overlords of Infamy is a game of silly supervillainy. The idea is you're trying to make everyone as miserable as possible by doing silly things, like blanketing the region in glitter, or throttling internet speeds to 56k, Ugh. dividing by zero. That's a really bad one. And the entire time that you're doing this, there's a, a pesky adventuring hero that's wandering around who's going to murder your lackeys and liberate the land that you've exploited. And yeah, and crazy world events will happen that can just shake up the game in unpredictable ways. Yeah, and uh, this game is a lot of fun. I've played it. It also is fun for all ages. You made it sort of have these characters that people seem to get really attached to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, uh, you know, for small pieces, we say it's 13 plus on the box, but honestly, we've had a six year year old sit at our table at conventions literally all day and not lose a single game beat everyone they played against didn't get a single joke still destroyed everyone um i would crush that six-year-old just wanted to be known for that i don't know i don't know becca <laughs> lucas might give you a run for your money all right well uh now you have to get the paperwork signed to say a child's name on the air Whoops. but uh no big deal it's fine now uh, i want to talk about a lot of things your kickstarter for misery loves company yep. great name Thank for you. the expansion and we're also going to talk about a game called root because you mentioned it's one you really like and i really like it too and that is one that's sort of been labeled for its asymmetrical character goal mechanic and so I want to talk more about asymmetrical games in general we'll get to that but just wanted to give the people a heads up that that's going to happen um but the first thing that I really really need to know about you David mm -hmm. what were the games that were in your house when you were a kid oh no um nothing that you'd want to play today probably <laughs> I think we had go for broke uh there was at least two kinds of Monopoly, which I really loved as a kid. As Same. a kid. Um, I definitely had the Pokemon Master Trainer game. Ooh. Yeah, it was, uh, you, you'd travel around the map, which was based on Kanto, and catch Pokemon. It was interesting. Uh, I definitely say that it sparked my interest in game design at a young age, but I never touched upon it again until I was much older. Ooh. Yeah. So, so what did make you decide that you were going to be a game designer? Was that always the trajectory? Uh, no, actually, I went to I went to school for uh, 
film and video editing. Oh, <laughs> another one. Yeah, as soon as I graduated college, there were no jobs. I didn't know anyone into the industry, so I had to pivot to something else. But uh, many pivots later is when I got into game design. Uh, is that how you know Ivan Van Norman? Did you guys go to school together? We didn't. Well, actually, oh. we might have, but I never met him. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> it cool, could cool, happen. Cool. Uh, because he has a similar story. It's interesting in Los Angeles that um, these things have become so parallel. But, you know, producing, it, it requires a lot of the same skill set as overseeing a whole game design, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. There's definitely uh, some interesting parallels there. Very cool. Um, so, what were your thoughts when you first sat down to design Overlords of Infamy? What inspired you? Uh, that'd be my good friend Juan and I. Um, we were playing Juan? games. Juan and uh, and Chelsea. She's awesome too. Uh, they're uh, my favorite couple and uh, good friends. So we were sitting down to play board games. Uh, I was relatively new to modern games at the time and they had like 20, which I thought was so many. Yeah. And uh, good collection, modest, right? Right, modest. right. I think he's up to about four or five hundred now, something like okay. that. Okay, I'm pretty close to that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we just played a bunch of different games, and then we got on the topic of you know what kind of game would you make if you had the chance to do it? And I just couldn't stop thinking about it, and like I went to bed, didn't fall asleep for like four hours, just got up and found like an old poster board, and I started designing. And uh, within 24 hours, I had a really, really, really bad prototype of Overlords of Infamy that looks nothing like the game today. But uh, that's where it started. How long was the prototype process and playtesting and all that? Um, from the, when we started until we went on Kickstarter was about three years. No, it was it was two and a half years, two and a half years. And when was the the original on Kickstarter the first time? February 2016. 2016. Yeah. Ooh, and now it's 2019, and I here know. you are with your first expansion. Yeah. And will this be the first reprint of the game as well? That is correct. It is a reprint of the game. Uh, we're actually calling it a second edition because there's a lot of uh, updates that we've done to the game. We've completely overhauled the rule book. We're changing the wooden tokens. Um, we are making a new insert for the box that will hold all the expansion material, things like that. So uh, we're just calling it... Uh, Second edition. <laughs> Perfect. Um, now, you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. Uh-oh. Uh, you had issues with your artist at some points, right? Uh, yeah. We we had some art issues for sure. Um, without going into too much detail, we went through nine artists before settling on a few that we really liked for um, for the for Overlords. Wow. Yeah. One of them actually sued us. Um, What's it like to be sued? Uh, well, I couldn't really tell you because the judge took one look at what his complaint was and threw out the case. You must not be a gamer. I guess not. Um, but uh, it was basically a couple of months of being apprehensive and saying there's no way he's going to win this case. And then one day's worth of we're in court now. Oh, it's over. So, so just apprehensive. It wasn't like, yeah. oh my god, my what is my life? I'm being sued right now. Yeah, I, never I been sued. Out. <laughs> never been sued before. Uh, I could scratch that one off the bucket list. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. You gotta live. You know. You yeah. gotta do all the things. Uh, we did have one other issue with an artist. Um, mainly had to do with uh, designing our wooden tokens and then having a midlife crisis and desi deciding that they no longer wanted to uh, have their artwork associated with a board game. And then cut their hands off. Yeah, they cut oh, their hands tragic. off. Tragic. Yeah. Uh, most of the time, artists only do that with ears. 
one would think. Yeah. Because the prototype uh, was set, you know? Van Gogh was like, this is cool. Everybody cut your ears off if you want to be a real artist. Right. I definitely considered doing that, but uh, haven't done it yet. Well, you know, you're more of a conceptual artist versus a visual artist. And so you need your ears. You know what? That's a good point. I'm going to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just write it down <laughs> on your mirror. Remind yourself every day. Yeah. I should not cut off my ears as much as I want to. Yeah. That's a good mantra to go by, I think. <laughs> now, um, Misery Loves Company. Mm-hmm. What's new about it? What, what you got? What you got in that expansion? Uh, we've got a lot of things. Um, the Probably the most, um, well, I would say the biggest edition that we have is Huff the Tragic Dragon. (laughs) Uh, Huff the Tragic Dragon? You got it. Um, She is a force of chaos, and she's come down from the mountains of Planet Fred and destroyed the Kingdom of Good. It's now become like my kind of girl. Right? And it's now become her horde. And from the Kingdom of Good, excuse me, now her dragon horde, she travels around the board just you know, squishing lackeys and raising your land. And she's got her own imperatives that she's trying to complete. Um, so she gets to be a sixth player in the game. So she could be semi-AI, or you can have six players, in which oh. case four overlords, one adventuring hero, and then Huff the Tragic Dragon. And it is so much fun playing with the two of them on the board at the same time. Oh, cool. So I've played before, and what's interesting is that you can thwart your opponents, but it's limited how mm-hmm. much um, you know, gotcha there is in the game. And then the hero gets in your way just subtly. He's just, I find him mildly annoying. Mm-hmm. But Huff sounds like she is... You're all playing as an evil character, and then you have the force of good, which is the hero. Mm. But then there's just a more evil force that none of our baddies can contend with, essentially. I mean, you could say that, but uh, you could also say that Huff is just neutral evil mm. or chaotic neutral, maybe. One, maybe one of those, too. Sure, a force she, of nature. She's just out for herself. So she's like, hey, this sounds fun, or this is going to make me better. Let's go do this. I don't care if it hurts the hero or the overlords. I don't care what it does. I'm just going to do it. I knew. I knew there was something in common between me and Huff. Yeah. Chaotic neutral. That's how... What, what's your alignment? My alignment? Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. More often than not, I am... I'm going to say lawful good. Believe it or not, that was the first D&D character I ever played, Lawful Good Paladin, uh, which was a six-foot-tall walking, talking blueberry muffin that was a paladin. What? Yeah, I was enchanted. Um, <laughs> I could shrink down to one-sixth my size since muffins are mostly air inside. Uh, my blueberries were explosive if I ripped them off me and threw them at people. It was great. Uh, thanks, Lawful. high school. Uh, but uh, that was definitely Lawful Good. Um, since then, I tend to go more uh, Lawful Neutral or chaotic neutral, or somewhere in in there. Love it. Chaotic good's also fun. Okay. Well, sure, lawful boy. Okay. Blueberry muffin boy. Yeah. Um, And we should also mention to people who have played Overlords of Infamy before that you guys have streamed streamlined the rule book. We have. Which, you know, no offense, rule books are tough. I'm very critical of rule books. And so I'm glad that you guys have rewritten it. Be critical because I thought that I could handle writing the rule book myself the first time around. And that was a lesson I learned uh, the hard way. So uh, we've run it by rules editors, some very awesome people, um, passed around, make sure that it's actually clear, uh, much more clear now um, what you can do and where. And we rearranged uh, where things are in the rule book, so it's easier to find things that are grouped together. Uh, I will never write a rule book by myself again. 
but uh, yeah, we're, we're very excited about uh, redoing that. And we're also offering a few other things for people who already own the base game. So with the, the Kickstarter for the expansion, we also have an upgrade kit uh, now. So you can get everything from the first edition of Overlords um, upgraded to the second edition materials, which is going to include a box insert that will hold all of the expansion content. Uh, it will also have the new wooden tokens that we're printing, the ones that more closely match the iconography on the board, because uh, that is another comment that we got. A tricky thing that happens when the artist changes. You got it. That's sure. exactly what happened. So, uh, yeah, this time around, we are, um, they'll definitely match the iconography. I believe it's, uh, you know, 99%. Um, identical to what's on the board. There's like one piece that's very similar, but not identical. Um, other than that, uh, we also found some uh, some issues on cards that we released originally. We fixed those. All the things that we've had to issue errata for, those have been fixed. All of that's in the upgrade kit now. So if uh, you have the original game, then you can get the upgrade kit. If you don't have the original game, you could get the second edition and get everything anyway. Uh, interesting errata for the cards because the cards are so world changing, the world events, mm -hmm. naturally. And it's something I noticed with the game like Betrayal at House on the Hill. When you have something that changes rules, mm -hmm. that requires its own set of playtesting. Right. And we had over 200 cards in the base game. So, wow, yeah. that's 200 games to test. I mean, hopefully, I don't know. I've never playtested my own game before, so I don't know. I it's a lot of testing. Amount of testing, but when you have to exponential exponentialize it. I think we were still up. doing playtests on the base game up to the moment, or the day before we sent our files to the manufacturer to print. Wow. So, I mean, this was well after the Kickstarter. We were still testing. And by that point, it was, it was a well-oiled machine. Uh, but every now and again, we'd find something that, oh, maybe we should make this a little clearer. And uh, then we found plenty of those after we released. Oh, of course. Yeah. Hey, that's what second editions are for. Exactly. So let's move on a little bit and talk about, you told me some of your favorite games. Yeah. Twilight Imperium, mm -hmm. third and fourth edition being some of them, but uh, we've already talked about that recently, haven't we? Haven't we, my listeners? Oh, did my you? sweet yeah. listeners. Yeah. Yes, that was our first episode, and I actually, because of this cult that you're hearing right now, had to cancel a Twilight Imperium game last weekend. By the way, still heartbroken. if you're looking for players, I will never say no to Twilight Imperium. Oh, interesting. All right, adding you to the list, <laughs> noted. What I want to talk about is Root, a game of of Woodland Might and Right. This is released by, in 2018 by Leader Games, designed by Cole Whirly. Whirly? Whirly, I believe. Whirly, uh, art by Kyle Farron. So this is basically a straight-up war game, but you'd never think of it that way because you're playing as one of four adorable woodland creatures, um, or six if you have the Riverfolk expansion. Mm -hmm. And... A lot of it is area control, but it's unique in that the character goals are asymmetrical, I would say. Um, and basically, first faction to 30 victory points wins. Uh, some cards allow a player to go completely off the scoring track and have a brand bank and new win condition. Mm -hmm. I found that really interesting. So what is it that you enjoy about Root? Um, for Root, I never really played any counterinsurgency games, coin as they're uh, colloquially known. But when I got Wait, into what is a counterinsurgency game? Uh, I don't think I'm the best one to do justice explaining it uh, because, as I mentioned, Root is basically the first one I played. Okay. This is this is essentially takes um, all the elements of a war game, as you mentioned, like that, and uh, then 
it breaks it down, and each different faction embodies one of those uh, one one of those elements of the game. So it's really interesting to me because every time that I play it, and I regardless of which faction I choose, I see a new way to win, or I see. Uh, something that, oh, hey, if I had done this last time, it might have been better. And then I try it and I'm like, oh, wait, something else might have been better. It's There's always something new with this game. And every time I play it, I, I just have such a good time. I don't think I've ever played it with anyone who disliked it afterwards. Yeah, I love this game. I find it beautiful. So let me just go over the four factions you can play. Yeah. So there's the Marquis de Quette, and this player starts with almost full board control. There's different areas on the map that... Uh, and it, their goal is sort of engine building because they're building workshops and lumber mills and barracks and everyone else is sort of trying to tear them down, but they start with the most power, I would say. And then there's the Eerie. This is my favorite. They're the old birds and they're so, sort of the old guard, I would yeah, say. crotchety. Yeah, super crotchety. They capture territory from the cats. They build roosts and they have a unique engine building mechanic because... Um, if they ever can't do a step of the engine that they have built, then the other old crotchety birds stage a coup and then they have to take a small penalty and start their engine over. So that's really interesting and um, something I haven't seen a lot. Then there's the alliance. Of course, you got to resist. And um, what type of animal are they? The Woodland Alliance are, uh, they are a combination of animals. <laughs> I believe they represent basically the mouse. So I've referred to them as the oh, Toastland, uh, the Toastland Alliance because, yeah, because the little meeples like look toast. like toast. Yes. Uh, but no, they're... Uh, it's the most adorable war you'll ever come across. Yeah. Um, so they sort of hide in the shadows, recruiting forces, hatching conspiracies. I think this is the most difficult faction because I played as the cat and I just squashed any rebellion they tried to plant a seed of before they could do anything. Yep. Um, so they, they are sort of more late game mm-hmm. domination. It's a lot of planting those seeds. And then there's the vagabond who does whatever the F they want and goes off on um, taking from players and giving to other players. They trade their cards mm-hmm. for goods and have their own side quests and have a totally different goal structure than anyone else. Um, they don't control land they don't have an army as the other factions do so that's what i mean by asymmetrical is that everybody starts with entirely different abilities um but yeah so who's your favorite to play (laughs) well the first the first time i played this game i was the woodland alliance Mm. and i'll agree with you it probably is the most difficult because once i played as them i figured them out whenever i'd play as a different faction i felt they were easier to play Mm. um i still think the woodland alliance are my favorite though i generally like things that are that are difficult for me. Is that um, the activist in your heart speaking, or it might true be. game mechanics? Well, maybe a little bit of both, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, I also probably my favorite element of the game, even though the Woodland Alliance are my favorite to play, is the uh, is the Eerie, the Eerie Dynasty, the birds. And as you mentioned, you can go into collapse if you aren't able to meet your requirements. There's there's decrees that you must do. Every turn. Wow, do the decree. Exactly, yeah, like that. and yeah, that was that was perfect. Um, and if you aren't able to uh, fulfill every requirement of that de- decree, you will go into collapse. And that is something that I've never seen in a game before. 
Uh, and maybe I'm just not playing the right games, but I love that element. It's brilliant. Um, but uh, those are just the the races that are, or, sorry, the factions that are in the base game. Mm. The otters are fantastic. Uh, they're basically uh, they're basically merchants. So they set up trading posts. They set up uh, waterways that you can use in the game, which you can't do normally. Uh, you can turn all of their little meeples into. Uh, your forces for a turn by hiring them as mercenaries. And that the best sounds part, utterly fantastic. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that was awful. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> but I loved it. Uh, you could. The, the great thing is the player uh, that, that, that is playing as them sets the prices for each of, the, uh, each of those options. Mm. So using the waterways, using them as mercenaries, or selling cards. And... Uh, they. This is like the World Trade Commission. Exactly. Mm, and then there's know. also the the lizard cult. Oh. Yeah. The, the lizard cult is very interesting because they convert other factions <gasps> to them, and then they become oh. lizard tokens or lizard meeples. So not only do they get converted to the lizard religion or cult, as you can say, they also get turned into lizards. So I, in my head, I like to picture them inside of lizard suits. Yeah, I think that works, there's right? such rich storytelling yeah. that just evolves around this game. Yeah. And then there's uh, they're even coming out with another expansion. It's going to be on Kickstarter soon, and it's going to be the crows and the moles. The crows? But we already have birds. The crows. I know. Um, and, and unfortunately, I don't know too much about this one yet, but uh, it's got my attention. Cool. Well, I should mention that you sometimes uh, work the leader games booth at conventions because they're your buddies. They are fantastic people. Yep, full disclosure. They are fantastic people, but the only reason that I agree to work in their booths is because of the amazing games that they made. They had me captured with Vast. Vast was incredible. If you're talking asymmetrical games, um, Vast is one that you should look at. And that is another game where every single faction that you play as, every character that you play as, has a different win condition and different play conditions entirely. So uh, it, it's like Root. It's a bit more in-depth when it comes to the asymmetry. But uh, they're both fantastic games, and I will generally never say no to playing either of them. Excellent. we got to take a short break and then we'll be back to talk more about Root and Asymmetry with David Aaron Zuckman. Welcome back to Victory Points. I'm here with David Aaron Zuckman, the designer and creator of Overlords of Infamy and the soon-to-be-released expansion Misery Loves Company. And we're talking about Root. Yeah. Root and asymmetrical mechanics. Um, now, I came across this post on Medium by Drew Knox. Shout out to Drew. And here's how they broke down different styles of asymmetrical mechanics. Because when you think about it, anything can be characterized as asymmetrical because every player is going to have a point at which their gameplay diverges. So there's results. For example, die results, which your favorite game ever, Monopoly. Uh, oh. Your dice roll changes different players land on different properties and have the ability to buy different properties. Uh, or Machi Koro. Sure. 
one that I find extremely frustrating. Uh, the Harvard experience is better, but because luck is such a deciding factor in what you can do, those are asymmetrical results. It scraps but, the board game. Yeah, that's not really what we, <laughs> it scraps the board game. That's not really what we mean generally when we're referring to asymmetrical. Then there's starting parameters like Catan, which really you're choosing, but uh, you have different abilities based on where on the board you start. Then there's information that's asymmetrical for example when your cards are secret like magic the gathering because the other player has no idea what you're starting with and then uh asymmetrical abilities this is mostly cooperative games you know pandemic forbidden desert so at least there's something unique you can do on your turn even though i will quarterback the crap out of you no matter what you choose (laughs) and um and then there's two more. There's goals that are asymmetrical, sure. which I guess root isn't exactly asymmetrical goals because everyone's working for victory points unless, unless you, you go the, off the grid, you find that card. The dominance card, yeah. Yeah, the dominance card, which if anybody finds a dominance card, they have to put it face up on the table, if right? If they want to. They don't. Or they can they, just hoard it. Yeah, they aren't required to use it uh, as a condition. They could use it uh, for other reasons. For example, if you have a card, you need to use a card that fulfills a certain requirement. You could use that instead. Right, but then it doesn't just go to the regular discard. It goes face up on the table for someone else to claim right. the alternate win condition. So that's an example of a goal that's asymmetrical. Uh, I would say Twilight Imperium has secret objectives mm-hmm. as well as public objectives, but the secret objectives are asymmetrical goals. And then there's rules asymmetry, Mm -hmm. which is the most asymmetrical game can get. And this, I would say, the Vagabond has rules asymmetry. As you were saying, I haven't played Vast, but I need to because it's one of the best examples of asymmetrical rules. Um, But yeah, is there something about asymmetrical games that you like or that you try to put in your game? Well, as... From that list that you read, that's really actually a, an interesting way of looking at it, that everything is asymmetrical. And I guess there's varying degrees of it mm-hmm. in that way. And uh, the asymmetry in that way is what makes games fun to play. If everybody was literally exactly the same, you'd have chess, right? Uh, so, which Ooh. chess is a good game, but actually... Yeah, don't diss chess on my podcast. Oh, no, no, no. Chess is one of my favorite games of all time. Chess I was on is- the chess team all through high school, thank you very much. Oh, nice. I tried to start my own chess club, but um, no one wanted to join. <laughs> That's too bad. I actually worked as a chess tutor for about a year and a half with a uh, shout out, Jay Stallings. Awesome guy. Hold on. So there are parents who pay to have their children ch- taught chess? Uh, not always, but uh, as I mentioned, uh, California Youth Chess League with Jay Stallings, he's a visionary and uh, he... From the moment when I was in second grade, I joined his uh, uh, CYCL and I stayed with him all through high school. And then I ended up tutoring as part of his team uh, when I was in college. And he is a brilliant person, not just as a chess player, but everything that he does is to help out the community. Um, And and I I can't imagine what he does makes him much money, but he still does it. And um, he's very focused on that. And now he's expanded and he's offering kits for people to uh, start up their own chess leagues in his fashion around the country and uh, probably around the world at this point. Um, so shout out to him. He's uh, He definitely sparked my love of chess and probably gaming at large, I would say. 
That's incredible. Tell me his name one more time. Jay Stallings. Jay Stallings. That's so cool that you taught chess in in league play. That's so cool. What did that do for you to work with people and kids in that way? Uh, Well, I love people and kids, but uh, chess teaches you patience. Um, And I would definitely say it helped me focus. So, uh, yeah, (laughs) I guess it did that for me. What do you think it does for the students that go on? I mean, patience, of course. I've seen kids that have um, some behavioral issues or um, issues sitting still, focusing, ADHD, things like that. Chess gets them to sit there and think about what they're doing. Um, I've seen uh, my nephew who does the same thing. He he has a lot of trouble just sitting and paying attention to things. Uh, Chess helps him focus. Wow, interesting. You know, I've been dealing with this in my own life because I think I have focus issues and um, I I can't sit still for very long unless it's a game. That is the only thing because then my mind is going a million places. But I find that so difficult to physically sit still in general. Do you have that issue? Yeah, I would attribute that to information overload because at this point, there's so much information at our fingertips, so many things that we can do and not enough time to do it. But we have so many things that are interesting to us that we want to focus on. Like uh, Kingdom Hearts 3 just came out and I'd love to play oh, that. No. But I'm also looking at at the Kickstarter and then there's The Witcher 3, which I haven't started and Divinity 2. And yeah, so it's um, so I many different games. I've played a lot games. of The Witcher 3. It's, oh, mm-hmm. I, I will. I, I just know that, that it's going to take up my entire life. So <laughs> I got to set aside about a month for that one. Maybe more. I don't know. Yeah, but it's, it's the decision paralysis of what to do. But exactly. when you've committed with other people to sit and play a game, then I guess you're there. And that's the reason I make games is there's so many uh, terrible things going on in the world right now, uh, things that I don't want to think about. Everybody gets stressed. If I can make a game that allows someone to sit down and forget about their problems for an hour or two, I feel like I've done my job. That's beautiful. That's really nice. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's a very cool reason to make games. Yeah. And something about your game is, well, all there it could be worse. We could have um, these evil overlords oh, doing right, these right. problems. Although, yeah. debatably, few things are as bad as what's actually going on out there. Well, I mean, at least uh, in certain ways, like with my game, you could make fun of it or you could laugh at it a little bit. Like I think uh, one of my favorite plots from the first game is build a wall and make the kingdom of good pay for it. (laughs) That one gets a lot of laughs every time it comes out. (sighs) Can't wait till that's a distant memory and it's just talking about, you have this card talking about this historical laughable thing. Yeah, uh, like uh, in the expansion, we're gonna have a government shutdown card and uh, a few other things similar to that, so. Oh, yep, you can't leave that out, of course. Longest government shutdown in history. Gotta love that. That's super exciting. As uh, I'm shaking my head now. Yeah, but I do have I do have hope that um, at least some cool policies will be proposed. Yeah, in, in the sure. short term. Now well, that the government is back open. So yeah, that's not what this podcast is about. But uh, I can't help it. Because, hey, game theory can be applied to real life situations as well. Well, and I think there's a lot of politics in root. Sure. I yeah, I'm definitely consider myself part of the woodland alliance but uh <laughs> but the birds are just so fun to they play. are so fun <laughs> and then of course there's the cats who doesn't like cats i mean they make me sneeze to death but they're fun to play yeah oh really yeah <laughs> super just, allergic just cats. thinking about cats <laughs> makes you sneeze oh yeah <laughs> well i'm sorry that i have a cat and i hugged you oh and that's okay therefore 
I'll, might be sneezy. I'll survive. We have a cat in uh, Misery Loves Company, Pancakes, and mm. uh, she does not like Waffles the Corgi, believe it or not. I mean, Waffles doesn't like anyone, but... Waffles hates everyone and everything, so yeah, you're right. Waffles has taken off. I've seen a lot of buttons. I've seen stuffed animals. Yeah. That's the part that I was thinking of when I was saying how much younger people love your game is yeah. they, they really identify with Waffles, <laughs> the evil corgi. Yeah, and um, I really got to attribute a friend of mine, uh, Michael Lee Chow. He is... Uh, a brilliant friend, and when he playtested Overlords originally, he looked at me and he said, "You know what your game needs? You need a corgi." <laughs> and I looked True at him insight. and I said, "Our game needs a corgi." <laughs> and, I imagine uh, this uh, very dramatic moment of deep eye contact. Yeah, it needs a corgi. Yeah, a lot of minor keys being played in the background. <laughs> yes. and, uh, but no, that that was the turning point, and I, and I fully believe Waffles is. Um, to blame for a lot of the uh, popularity that the game has gotten. Very cool. Very cool. Well, well well-deserved popularity. And congratulations on putting your expansion on Kickstarter. And good luck. Thank you. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me about Misery Loves Company and Ruth. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. And thanks so much to our two listeners at home for listening to Victory Points. Make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that we can go up to three listeners. Thanks so much. Talk to you next time.